Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Hub24 is on a mission to empower advisors to deliver better financial futures for their clients. They're dedicated to customer service excellence and delivering innovative product solutions that create value for advisors and their clients. These are just some of the reasons why advisors rate them number one for overall satisfaction and why their managed portfolio solution has been rated best in market five years running. Hub24 believes nothing happens in isolation. So they're working together with advisors, licensees, and industry leaders to leverage their data and technology expertise to help solve key challenges in the delivery of financial advice so more Australians can access cost-effective advice. Welcome back to the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I'm joined by Jordan Barker. Welcome. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming on. Uh, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your practice at the moment. Sure. Uh, so I, my practice is planning solo. Uh, we're a small firm. Uh, we focus on helping people going through divorce and helping them rebuild afterwards as well. Uh, and also we're looking at helping people through you know, bigger life transitions as well. Fantastic. And of course, you're an independent financial advisor, which we'll get into uh, get into shortly. But before we go there, let's let's follow your journey. Tell us about uh, where it all started for you. Yeah, sure. I uh, came out of university, uh, started working at a smaller boutique firm, wound up at one of the big banks. For all of the pros and cons of the banks, they're a very good learning environment, or they were a very good learning environment. Lots of meetings every day. I uh, went from there into a stockbroking firm where I was the advisor in there. That was fun when the GFC hit. I still remember all the phones ringing with the margin calls for all the stockbrokers. Uh, and then at 25, had the brainwave of setting up my own business and going out on my own um, and pushed through that. And yeah, merged with another larger firm a few years ago, had a really great time with them. Um, but we parted ways last year, partly so I could head towards that independent goal. And now here we are. Yeah, fantastic. That's a very that's a very quick overview. Now, tell me about uh, the fact that uh, you, know, you, you went out and got your qualifications at uni. Uh, what did you get? I have a Bachelor of Commerce with a major in financial planning. Yeah, wow. So all, all you know, like you were one of the ones that didn't just fall into this. You actually went out and studied it and wanted to become. Why? Why did you choose that? Uh, I, I actually always had the ambition of becoming a lawyer, uh, and then I realised that I enjoyed economics and finance too much at school. So went into commerce, didn't really know which way I would head, uh, and had I think I was in a fundamentals of finance class, and I came across what financial planning was. And it seemed like to a really good overlap between the you know, theoretical side of finance, where it's all about the numbers and spreadsheets, uh, and actually helping people individually. Um, and that's kind of what I fell in love with at first. And then as I went through the education, the complexity probably kept me going, I think. I think learning the superannuation rules four times in 15 years uh, has kept things pretty fresh. So yeah, that's, that's what sparked the interest initially. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And, and I, I, as you say that, I think about the the combination of the technical side uh, and the emotional side, and, and having that balance, being able to be able to think about a situation from both the technical aspect and then the the client's emotional needs. Yeah, it definitely keeps it interesting, and it makes for it is quite a complex job what we do. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far. 
Yeah, certainly plenty to keep you interested. Um, t- t- talk to me about the, uh, the then your first job. How did you land a job in the bank? Um, so I, I started off doing admin at a smaller firm for about six months. And that was really, I don't think I realized the benefits of that until much later on when you're actually in the nuts and bolts of, of getting an application in and chasing through underwriting and that sort of thing. Um, but then, yeah, just applied and wound up in a role uh, at Westpac. Yeah, and just ran with it from there. That was, I think I was there for two or three years. Tell me about that experience starting with a bank and then, because uh, obviously back in those days, uh, that's where all the training was. You know, I guess there was a lot of, there was a big training, uh, learning curve to be done. You, you could shadow some people, I would give you some some training. Like, forget, forget about the advice and the product, like we're not there to talk about that, but just talk <laughs> to us about the training aspect and how that uh, how that set you up. Yeah, in hindsight, the investment they put into training um, is significant. And as you say, the motivations are obviously something we won't talk about. But I remember we did six weeks of training off-site in a group um, and that was from everything. A lot of it was obviously very product-based to get to know your product. And I think there were accreditations involved you had to pass to know your product back then. Uh, but also how to run a meeting, how to position a meeting, how to position your services, how to structure advice. There was strategic education as well. Through that, we were then put out into the branches uh, and I was partnered with a senior advisor uh, and we would meet up once or twice a week. But it was still me on my own in those first few meetings and I shudder to think how they must have gone. They were either really quick or really long. I I can't quite remember. Um, And then they had ongoing training through the process as well. Every week, every fortnight, you'd catch up with your peers. Every week, there'd be discussions. Um, So it was a very intensive way to learn but there was always that background hum of sales and leaderboards and targets and things like that. And I I think that experience kind of left me wondering where I fit into the picture because that that side of things I realize now is just of no use when it comes to motivating me. I, I don't really care about a lot of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, there's, you know, that's a, that's a culture that comes with with um, product sales and obviously, you know, banks have got product that they need to distribute and, that, and let's not let's not bash them for that. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's that's the culture for any particular larger organisation that has shareholders and needs to, and needs to you know, sign on new new clients or new bank accounts, whatever it might be, uh, new mortgages. Um, talk to me about that process of, like, with the training, you you go through that training where you, you get to sit, is that – do you see that now in the in the professional year? Is that a similarity or are we just sort of missing some of that stuff with how the, the new year might look? Yeah, I find the professional year quite a, an interesting concept. I, I think done well, it could go beyond, it could surpass what we had in the past, what I went through. I just, I worry about the resourcing that the firms that are doing the PY are going to have to bring to bear to do it and whether or not that'll create a gap between the potential and the reality. Um, I mean, at the bank, Ultimately, they didn't really spare any expense because you were part of the onboarding process. Um, they had the infrastructure in place to align you with a senior partner or senior planner and technical resources to train you up. In a smaller firm, so, I mean, a PY is something that's in the back of my mind for our firm. The resourcing around that is something I need to get my head around and how we can adequately do that because I think that next generation coming in, ultimately, that's the legacy those of us that are still in the game will be leaving behind. And I don't want us to stuff that up. Yeah, and how old were you when you were coming through that banking journal? I was twenty-two. And how, how did you go sitting in front of clients and talking about retirement? And uh, was there was there moments there where you were you you, you know you're questioning yourself as to do you deserve to be there? Yeah, I think the imposter syndrome was pretty strong. I think parroting the the lines that we were given helped a lot. Uh, but no, absolutely, yeah, you you're scared out of your wits. <laughs> and how did you get past that? What was what did you tell yourself? Oh, I think it was a bit of bluff and bluster, really. Uh, I think knowing that we, again, 
the bank system is very easy to criticise, but knowing that personally we were coming at it with the right intent, that we were trying to help improve people's situation, um, and that helped a lot. And also being quite open with the fact, being prepared to say, look, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll come back to you with it. I think that's a very powerful sentence to use. Um, and it took me a while to learn that one. But yeah, you just bluff through it ultimately and, and hope that you can clean up any mess afterwards. Yeah, exactly right. And, uh, and, and, and you're right, we're not here to bash uh, the bank. In fact, I think for a lot of people that have stuff in place now because of that process and system that they probably wouldn't have otherwise had. Mm. Uh, talk to me about the stockbroker days because you moved from a bank to a, a – <laughs> A stockbroker pre-GFC, everything's going swimmingly well. You know, stocks are only going up. They only ever go up, don't they? Don't they? <laughs> um, uh, tell us about that that uh, moment where you were the uh, the financial planner in with a group of uh, with a group of um, let's say uh, bolstering stockbrokers. So I am trying to keep my positive hat on, Fraser, but um, <laughs> we're ticking a few of the boxes on the way through. Um, just trying to, just trying to wind you down, yeah, grind you down a little bit. <laughs> Look, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm. I'm I'm mystified at the way stockbroking is is treated and seen from a regulatory point of view. Uh, I think that the complexity of the work that we do on our side of the fence, I, I don't see why the rules are sort of managed a bit differently. But but even that aside, I think for a certain clientele, for a certain group of people, a stockbroker is a fantastic addition to their wealth approach. I don't think it should be in isolation. Um, and I think that the the intellectual or, or the theory that we are seeing develop over years does bring into question the value of the model that they're currently operating through. So we were sort of in the middle there of them, the firm I was in, were transitioning across to more of a wealth management approach where it was essentially financial advice. They were trying to bring in the assets under management, charge a percentage on that rather than charging brokerage. I think that was quite an interesting model and I believe they've continued with that a bit. But then the GFC hit and everything fell apart, essentially. Um we had brokers not come in for days, so we were taking the margin calls and just passing on the messages. There's not nothing more we could do. We had clients selling down. You know, we the firm that I was in, they were heavy into Babcock and Brown. They were heavily into Alco uh, companies that just wiped out. Um, ABC Learning was a huge part of the practice. So that was just horrifying for me. The idea of margin calls spiraling down for people over time um, when. Most of us listening will probably be of the opinion that buy and hold is a really good strategy rather than over-leveraging and, and punting. So it was eye-opening. It, it definitely displayed some of the distinctions between our approach and what I'd be learning on the side compared to what I was experiencing in, in the day-to-day. Yeah, it was a fascinating experience. It's not one I'd necessarily want to repeat, though. No, it's, it's a very difficult process to get up in the morning and go to work when you know what's coming. Tell me about your uh, your state of mind at the time going through that and talking to those clients and, and not being able to really do anything. I think look, it was irritation was a big part of it because these weren't our clients. None of our clients in our little financial planning pod had margin calls. All of our clients were sitting tight. We were you know, we were buying, if anything. We were buying into Macquarie in the $20 and $30 point. Um, that, was, that was fun. Like That's exciting. It's nerve-wracking because you're trying to hold on to the theory thinking it'll get you through as the world melts around you. Um, but then having to spend a good part of my day on the phone to lenders chasing margin calls and then having to leave messages for people or send emails to people for clients because the brokers had just disappeared. Yeah, it was pretty frustrating. It was quite irritating. And, uh, and you know, like working with those brokers, did they? I guess they eventually showed up. What uh, <laughs> Did that ruin your relationship with them? Yeah, I, I didn't stay at the firm much longer after the GFC. I think I set out on my own six months into it. Nine months into it, yeah, I think maybe a part. I mean, I was I was in my mid twenties, so a big part of it was well, if I couldn't do it much worse. 
which is the arrogance of youth, of course. Yeah, of course. So how old were you when you started your own firm? Uh, I was 25. Yep. So 25 years old, starting your own firm. Uh, how did you start it? Obviously, you, you, did you, you had some relationships, existing clients, or did you just well, out of the, like, what, what was the plan? What was the game plan? I think the, the game plan and the reality diverged pretty quickly. Uh, I think my experience is a really good example of how not to do it. Um, I went out with a handful of clients, which was they were wonderful, and they're still with me, which was, one, was fantastic. That really helped in the early days. But I was undercapitalized. I didn't have the referral sources I should have had. Um, and it was a really hard slog for three years, just uh, meeting people and acquiring clients very slowly. I partnered up with a really good finance broker early on, but negotiated myself into a terrible revenue splitting deal where very quickly every deal was losing money. Um, yeah, I ticked every box on the mistake checklist for three years. It was very educational, Fraser. Well, this is why this story is so important because uh, it helps other people avoid uh, avoid similar mistakes. Mm. Um, so, so 25, starting your own practice, I call this the apprenticeship. Mm. Uh, stage when you start your own business and, and you know everybody thinks you can start a business and and that's great you can have some runway but um, you know go back to the idea of starting a first year apprenticeship wages for the first year at least and then uh, and maybe they'll double every year until you get something that resembles a real a real job uh, were you were you did you just sort of set this up to start your own job or was this you know setting up a business I think the plan was to set up a business uh, you know the five-year plan was to bring myself out of the front line and try to hire other staff. Um, those delusions, oh not, they were they turned out to be delusions and that arrogance was punctured very quickly um, and it became a matter of survival is too extreme a term, but really just getting by for the three years while we built the foundations and, and recovered from some of my mistakes. Um, that arrogance I mentioned earlier, it's very hard to maintain that when you have to work, live, move back home with mum to get by as you're running a business. Um, so that blew all that out of the water. It was horrible at the time. Horrible. Um, but in hindsight, it's made me a much better advisor and a much better business person now, I think, and a better person, to be frank. Yeah, Len, look, you know, I think you'll probably look at when you listen back to this podcast, or if you, if you do, you'll you'll realize that all of those different experiences uh, <laughs> turned you into the, the human that you are today. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's not easy. Uh, you know, like you said, you've been trained to the banks and you've been through, um, you've been some, through some adversity with the, within the GFC and, uh, you know, you call it arrogance, but you've got to have a bit of um, confidence in yourself to, to to pack yourself to do these things and, um, and and start your own business. Tell me about that merger with with the um, you know the because it's always people sort of give you that idea. You need to have a referral partner and you, know, mm. you need to set it up where you, you do these things and you're getting this information from outside sources that are saying you should be doing this. Tell me about that relationship you set up with the um, with the broker. <laughs> So I, I sent out 150 cold letters to finance brokers in my area, uh, in my sort of part of Melbourne. And I had three responses. Two of them were people that you do not really want to do business with. Um, and one of them was somebody that was really good to do business with. And we started working together. Uh, I think there was maybe a mismatch in expectations you know, in, in terms of the level of salesmanship that I would be bringing to the role. Uh, I've never been terribly good at sales. Um, and there was that bit of a clash there. But on the whole, he had a wonderful group of clients. He approached it really well, and he was really generous with his time and with his his clients. But signing up to a 50-50 revenue split, if anybody's considering that, I would strongly discourage you in doing so, particularly in the new world. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's sort of not a thing that you can really do in the new world at all. But uh, but, but you know, back 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 then, um, back then it was probably uh, you know uh, uh, am, fairly ambitious. But you know, you as you, was that something because did you sign up to that because you were were struggling to, to yeah. win or get new clients in, and, and that wasn't part of your your um, your you know personal values. 
Yeah, absolutely not. It wasn't it wasn't part of the initial plan. It was a matter of well, here's a source of clients for people that I can help, um, and and bring revenue into the business. And it, it did meet that purpose. You know, for that two to three years, it was a very productive relationship, and it let me springboard into a few other areas. Uh, and then when that relationship did come to an end, you know, we're able to keep rolling on, which was something I'll be really grateful for forever. I think. Yeah, and and tell me about that ending of the relationship. That was that. It's obviously a difficult calling, a time to any relationship difficult to end. And of course, you know that with uh, the you know your, your current business called Planning Solo, talking about divorce. Um, but any any relationship difficult to end. So tell me about ending that business relationship. Uh, it, it sort of died on the vine, to be completely honest. Uh, he, I think, lost a bit of confidence in the way that I was doing it because I wasn't upselling hard enough. I wasn't pushing the the envelope hard enough in some of the strategies we were doing. I am by nature a fairly conservative person. My bias is towards keeping things simple, and I think that was a bit of a clash. Um, and so the the client flow dropped off, the, the flow of clients dropped off. I generated or developed other relationships that were proving to be a bit more aligned. And so it sort of just drifted away until eventually we just we just stopped. Yeah, it was a bit of a shame, but I think it had run its course. Yeah, so so looking at these two businesses, your business, his business on paper, business on paper looked like they were a good match, but just your personal values were not aligned to his personal values, and that's where the relationship broke down. Yes, yeah, and I think, I mean, the story that we've told so far, I think there is a consistency there, in that I I often felt like I wasn't a good fit for the role that I was in because my my values, I guess, as you'd put it, or my my approach, didn't really align with what they wanted. Um, and it took me a long time to come to that realization, to be honest. I always thought there was something wrong with me, that I just wasn't cut out to be that kind of successful advisor. Um, and then I did some work with a really great coach who I think you may have spoken to, Baz Gardner. Um, and he set me straight on that, which was really, really, really beneficial. Yeah, fantastic. And 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 this is a really interesting part that and, and Baz is certainly somebody who, who does get – Get deeply into these uh, understanding your own values, and then, and then taking ownership of them, and just saying, you know what, there is no right or wrong. Whoever everybody's own values is right are right, and um, once they get to know them and understand them, then they can really uh, use those to their advantage, and just forget about the stuff that's not aligned because you'll end up uh, attracting clients if if you're honest and open and authentic about it. You'll end up collecting or attracting clients that are also aligned to your values, and you'll start enjoying your work. Um. So tell me about what what happened after that. You mentioned that you had some you had developed some other relationships with um, more people that were more aligned to you. So another finance broker who did a lot of work in the first homeowner space. So um, he was quite an inspirational guy, actually. So we were, I got a lot out of working with him. You know, in in Melbourne we have a very large uh, suburbs out on the periphery that involves a lot of commuting back and forth. So I was working with clients in that space, a lot of time on the road, but just really great to be able to help people get that first step. You know, they've just bought a house. We could make sure that everything else was tidied up and in the right place. So that was a fantastic relationship. He was a really great bit of a mentor, actually. Um, and also, over time, came to meet uh, the person who became my business partner. Fantastic. And tell us about uh, tell us about um, deciding that you're going to have a, an actual business partner. <laughs> I feel like I'm not really sticking to the normal narrative of business owners here, Fraser, but I, I was I – was, tossing up whether or not I should get out of it completely or keep going. Um, part, a large part of that was just that value clash that I kept feeling. I just kept feeling that I was not cut out to be a successful advisor by the, all the measures of success that I kept seeing. Um, and then my licensee at the time put me in touch with Brian Jones, who now runs VA Platinum, um, and we hit it off and we got to talking. Uh, and it was either I was either going to sell or I was going to buy, and he opened my eyes to the third option, which was to merge with his practice. Um, and we did that, 
uh, his business was a lot larger than mine, but it really opened up the opportunities for us to talk to different people and, and bring different approaches to our work. And it was just a really fruitful and beneficial partnership for me, definitely, I know. And how do you merge a business um, that's complete? I mean, I guess no two businesses are the same size ever uh, when you're looking at doing a merger, but how did you go through that process of working out a merger? Because, I mean, it's, it's very easy to just turn around and go, oh, we'll go 50-50 or we'll, we'll just merge at the same levels and you will be a major and a minor shareholder. Um, but talk us through the, the pros and cons of why that you, the conversations that you had to weigh up, how, how you can do it. One of the benefits I had is that Brian is an incredibly commercially minded person with an extreme approach to fairness. And I don't think that combination is very common. So I was very lucky in that regard. So we just looked at our revenue figures for the last two years. We took an average and we allocated percentages in a new entity based on that. Yep. And this is if anybody's thinking about merging or any sort of operation like this, we had a conversation very early on about exit strategies and, and how the partnership would be dissolved and how we would approach it, knowing that every business relationship runs its course. Um, and that turned out really beneficially because that's exactly how it played out. Yeah, as do most or almost every single business. Uh, when you set up that um, that that equity split in the the new venture, um, did you have options to sort of look at you know purchasing and share share transfer over time? Yes. Yeah, we did. We had it set up so that I could buy up more over time. That didn't come to pass uh, because of our friend Commissioner Hayne. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. <laughs> our good, our good friend. So, so tell us about uh, tell us about the, the business then. Uh, so that ran its course. How long was that? Uh, how long were you in partnership for? Oh, I think it was nearly three years. But yeah, in the middle of those three years was the Royal Commission. It was an acquisitive model, so we were buying other practices and rolling them up into our business. Um, which I think that aggregator approach was very practical back then. Um, you know, we had grandfathered revenue, we had large risk practices, we were rolling it up, and it was working really well. And then Obviously, the commission, the Royal Commission happened and definitely a positive process, I think. Um, but it meant that the grandfathered revenue was valued down and all the cons- all the dominoes fell from there. So it really had us review what we were doing. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so the uh, the idea of just um, picking up a few, were they C&D books or were they just whole, whole it was books? a mixture. Or a few were whole businesses, yeah. uh, retiring advisors that we just dropped in. Uh, there are quite a few C&D books. It was a great strategy. I think it's worked for quite a few practices and it worked for us. It's just we hit the brick wall of you know, the new world. Yeah, fantastic. In the capacity of the new rules. Tell me about that. Like, What tips would you give to somebody now thinking about buying a business or, or adding a book to their, um, you know, to bring in some additional revenue? What tips would you give them? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting proposition. I think on the one hand, do it. You know, the revenue calculation stacks up really well, particularly with current interest rates. Um, if you can have a really good first look at the book beforehand to sort out the quality, uh, that's really important. I've seen some differential pricing where certain levels of fees are valued at a different ratio, which makes a lot of sense. Personally, I think that Oh, geez, this is probably going to get me in trouble. I think financial advising fees, so your ongoing fees, I don't think they're worth anything anymore. I I think the fact that you need to get them renewed every 12 months, 24 months, brings us back to the market of accountants. Um, But if people out there see it differently, you can see some tension in the market, which is really good. On the other side, I do wonder if could you acquire a client base? Let's say you're spending 30 grand a year in interest on buying a book. If you diverted that 30 grand a year towards marketing or something else, could you acquire a client base that was directly in line with your values and your approach at the, for the same money? Not at the same, you don't have the same immediate revenue uplift, but is that a viable alternative? 
I think it might be. Yeah, I, and and, I, and you can tell where I'm going to go with this next sort of line of questioning in the fact that uh, you're absolutely right because when it comes to acquiring a book, if you're if you haven't then started with your own you know values and niche and, and target market and you're acquiring a book that's outside of that, then you're probably acquiring a whole lot of additional years of uh, you know pain or years of things that might uh, then you might turn around and go well then then none of these are actually my target client uh, what am I what am I doing so there might it might be a short term solution uh, yes. but not necessarily a long term solution um, so t- so tell me about the business because then you uh, so then you finished up uh, with that relationship how did that end. Um, we both decided to go in different directions. Brian was working in VA Platinum, uh, which is just going gangbusters. He's running a great operation over there. I'm still a client of his through VA Platinum. Uh, I have a wonderful VA that just keeps our business ticking. Um, and he was obviously more interested in that area. I was more interested heading down the independent path and building out the practice exactly like we just spoke about, really, marketing towards our ideal group of clients. So we just came to the decision to sell. We found a, a buyer who was very open to the idea. Went ahead with it. Uh, yep. It was done within a few months, I believe. Yeah, and was yeah. And that sale process was reasonably uh, reasonably good, or everything went smoothly. Yes. Yeah. No, it was very very good. The person that the group that bought us had done a lot of acquisitions in the past, and one of our conditions was that we wanted somebody to buy the business and take our staff with us. So we had uh, three or four VAs at the time who had been with us the whole time I was there and with Brian for years beforehand and we wanted to make sure they kept a role. We also had another advisor uh, who was very good and we wanted to make sure he kept a role and we found a buyer that did all of that. It was it was wonderful actually. It was a great outcome. Yeah, was that within your ex- existing license? No, no, it was outside of our license, yeah. T- tell us about moving to a new license <laughs> through, a, through a sale transition process. Was that difficult or was it uh, – would it- the, the buyer was self-licensed so I think that helped a great deal. Yep. Uh, and our deal, our licensee had had a lot of experience with this because we had bought a lot of books. We knew the team quite well, the transitions team. So they made it a lot easier. We had an office manager on shore here who was the most diligent and detailed person I've ever met. Without her, we couldn't have done it. Um, and yeah, it actually, from my perspective, went quite smoothly. Brian and Mindy might have a different perspective, but from my end, it was very easy. <laughs> Fantastic. And did you remain in the new business? No. No, completely out. So, how did you how did you pitch to them that you were going to main, still be an advisor but sell your business? I think the, the approach, the avenue we were heading down of focusing on helping people through divorce helped a lot. Um, and also, I bought out the group of clients that I wanted to keep working with out of the business. Yeah, and so I just made a very clear line. I said, "I'll sign anything you want. I have no interest in pitching across to the other company. Um, we're here to help, and we have helped you know, over the last twelve months uh, with any queries they might have had." So, I think it was a leap of faith by them, but it was also just me making sure I don't, I don't want to rip anyone off. I can't be bothered. Yeah, it, it's your commitment, right? It's your commitment and your name in the in within the profession. So that's what you wanted to to keep up. Mm. Now that that leads us to your target market. Why, where, how? You know, did you decide that this was uh, where you wanted to be? So going back to the work I did with Baz, um, what he made me realize was that all the things that I thought were wrong with me as an advisor, you know, I was too cynical. I was too, uh, I wasn't salesy enough. I was too, um, I went too overboard with clients. He said, no, actually, their talents and their strengths, they're just not applicable within the usual model. So, you know, that cynicism, really, it's skepticism that we bring to situations to protect our clients. You know, that going overboard with clients is because I like to protect them through a process. Um, And that was a really eye-opening experience. And the next step of that was working out, well, who are my favorite clients? And 
it was something like eight out of my top 10 favorite clients, not by value, but just favorite people that I love to meet with were divorced women. Um, and that opened the door to exploring, okay, how does, why is that? Eventually I realized that the work that sounds really silly because I run my business and it's how I support my family, but the, the, profit and revenue side of the business, I've never really given two hoots about. If the work is really boring and has no meaning, then I don't really care what the fee is. It's not really going to be enough for me to get interested. So if I can find work that is meaningful, creates an impact in people's lives and has some complexity around it, then that's going to get me up every morning. That coupled with the divorced clients led me down this path and I realized that there's a lot we can do to help unsure or inexperienced people through the financial side of their divorce. Um, and that's proven to be the case, which has been very fortunate. Yeah, that's incredible. So, you know, protecting people, I, I note the words you said, protecting people through a process or a transformation, um, you know, and to solve their problems on the way through that and to, and to help them move from one thing to another uh, lights you up inside as a, as a human. And therefore, if you can turn that into a profitable business model, it's also, um, it's, it's the win-win for you. It is. It is. And it, it did. I have thought a lot about the business and how I want it to look. And I think it's probably a bit different than the traditional planning approach. So for instance, we don't have ongoing clients. We don't have ongoing service arrangements in our business. We work to projects and engagements. Now for some clients, those engagements may be rolling 12 month engagements, but each one will be different. Each one will be tailored to their needs that year. So I see our business is almost more aligned with a barrister's business model where there will be no capital value, um, there'll be no asset to sell ultimately, um, rather than the traditional planning model with the, the three times a figure in the background. Yeah, that's incredible. So talk to me about that concept of that mindset that you put yourself through to say, I'm not building a business to sell anymore, I'm building a business that's going to, you know, you know I'm going to really, really enjoy working in and maybe somebody, another person who's like you will be just as enjoy working in it or coming in or taking it over. Uh, no asset, no asset to sell. Yeah, and look, you know, not, no small part of that is driven by uh, a real distaste for FDSs. I'll be completely honest. I just I, I yep. don't like building them when I, yeah. <laughs> um, but also, I was really influenced by Jim Stackpool's approach um, of that rolling project engagement idea. Uh, that played a big part in my thinking. But also, you know, commercially, it means that every job you do needs to be profitable. Um, which is a good discipline to have as well. It's not a discipline I always had in the past because the idea was, well, we'll take a loss on the upfront, but we'll pick it up on the back end. Um, that's not really an option for us anymore. Um, yeah, it's just a matter of we get the value out of the work that we do for people. I don't think we will have any clients for life. I think we'll have people that drift, we drift in and out of their lives over time. We have a big project at the moment that we're about to start, which is how do we capture or how do we create that community of people that we've helped? So we're not going to have a big book of clients that we service, but I want to have a huge cloud of people that we have helped in some way or another that we stay in touch with that as their needs pop up, we're the person they call or we're the group they call. So it's not a complete separation from the traditional model, but just a bit of a tweak, I think. Yeah, so to me, that's keeping the relationship, but not the financial relationship or the the working relationship you just hit the relationship and with you and your you and your staff and your brand and those sorts of things um and the community yeah yeah and it's how do we do that cost effectively you know as a business but also effectively for the people that we're talking to i mean we all have newsletters we unsubscribe from all the time i don't want that to be us um but it's a bit of a tighter open we'll experiment and we'll play around with that and i'm looking forward to getting that one off the ground yeah, that, that is an interesting project. Now, now talk to me about um, Jim's uh, projects and engagement. What what did you learn from that, and how did you how did you go about transforming your business into a projects and engagement style business rather than you know the 
it's too easy. This is the way we've always done it, traditional <laughs> planning firm. Well, I, I, I have our friend Commissioner Hayne to thank for a large part of it, I think. Um, he he applied – him and his team applied the blowtorch to the status quo of the way we did things, and it made me really revisit it, particularly because in the business we were in, we were doing it the traditional way, and it not it didn't blow up on us, but it got really hard. It was That's not the way the wind was blowing. So that, that sort of triggered the, the re-evaluation of how we work. Um, and then I've been following Jim's stuff for a long time. I think if I think he's been ahead of the curve for a lot of years. Um, and it just makes sense. We, we are there to help them address the complexities in their life and help them improve the odds of achieving their aspirations. That isn't going to be achieved by 1% on farm every year. It, it needs to be a line of their specific work. And if there's a year where we're not going to do much for clients, we don't charge them very much. You know, we, It is directly aligned to the work that we and the value that we add. And it just, I like it. It just makes it a lot easier. It means that my job, my fee calculator, my job sheet, calculator is horrendously complex and I can never share it with anyone because it's just a mess, but it works and it stacks up really well, I think. Fantastic. And, and do you go, you go through that fee calculator with your clients? Uh, no. So we'll have our initial meeting, our exploration meeting where we scope out the, what they're looking for and how we think we can help. We then prepare a proposal that outlines you know, our understanding of what they're looking to do, the services we believe should be priorities over the term of the engagement, and then the fees that are associated with that. Um, or our costs, we use that terminology now. Professional costs, I love it. Professional costs, we changed the heading in our proposal, thanks to that. Um, I believe that's from you, isn't it? Uh, I think I've, I, 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 it wasn't me originally. I think I, um, I, I saw it somewhere and uh, repurposed it. So, yep. But, uh, but I do like saying that, yeah, change it, change it from fees to, uh, to professional costs. Uh, so we, we don't show the actual calculation uh, in the background because there's quite a lot to it, but we just show the, the figure and then we divide that across the term of the engagement. Yeah, fantastic. And so that's in the second meeting and then they either do or don't go ahead and then you go ahead and scope out the project. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And inside that, that's the, you know, that's the, that's all the, the then the advice and then the implementation all, all becomes part of the project. Exactly. And we're, we're finding that in year one, we do quite a lot of work. In year two, there's generally less work. Uh, it's more just, okay, how are things tracking along? Part of that's our investment philosophy. We're very much in the passive group. Um, but then year three and four, there tends to be a bit more, um, you know, we start talking to the broader family. We start talking to, yeah, different groups. So it's been a good pattern. Yeah, fantastic. And so talk to me about the, the, the I, I want to get to the independent thing in a minute, but the marketing side of that. So changing, you know, creating a new name, working out exactly who you want to work for, um, exciting time, I guess, you know, new business concept, new new idea, new marketing. Uh, tell us about that, um, what, what, you, what work you put into that. I had a friend tell me early on in the process that he was a bit jealous of it because we were essentially starting up again. And I think, you know, that's fun when you start up. So, yeah, it, which was nice of him to say. Uh, a lot of thought went into it. You know, having the client, having the hard part was working out what made me happy in the work. And that's where that work with Baz, and I keep returning to that because that really paid off. Knowing the three or five things that really made me happy with my work made the rest a lot easier. It made it easier to say no to certain work. Let me focus down on this niche and really drill into that and and have the confidence to go out to family lawyers and say, look, I don't really know how we can help. How do you think we can help? And rolling on from there. Um, so in in terms of marketing and, and that, a lot of it was just that research piece that we did for the first six months, um, even under the old company. Um, and then... I like writing, so I write a lot of stuff. And that's mainly, I put it out mainly through LinkedIn on my blogs. And that has driven a lot of activity, actually. Uh, LinkedIn has been a really good opportunity to go and meet 
other professionals, not just family lawyers, but and talk about what we do. And that's been a really great source of clients and of work. Um, and our blogs and our website, you know, I try to follow SEO a little bit, you know, but it's complicated. <laughs> so I just throw a huge amount of words out there and it seems to be working out pretty well. Yeah, fantastic. It's also, uh, you're, you're letting the algorithms pick up those words and deliver them to the right people. Um, talk, so you've, you write a lot of blogs, then obviously you can get to then, you know, send those to, to family lawyers and, and other referral sources or people that work in and around what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been quite useful as well. And I think they've come across a lot of our stuff. Um, shifted a bit to just doing long form posts on LinkedIn. And that's generating a lot of conversations, you know, through messaging and things like that. Um, and just building out that network, you know, slowly. That's a really interesting point you mentioned just then slowly. Uh, you know, you, you can, I always say this with podcasting too, you can be an overnight success in, in two or three years from now uh, if, if you're just consistent, <laughs> if you're just consistent with this sort of stuff. Uh, how long had you been, you know, creating long form blogs and, and, and posts before you really sort of had some traction happening? Easily two years, easily. Yeah. And that's pretty actively building the network as well, putting stuff out a few times a month, um, making a lot of mistakes, but yeah, at least two years. And, and I think there's a lot more upside for us left as well. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and how much of that then was local to your region or area versus being able to sort of work around the country? So one of the blessings I had partnering up with Brian is he already had the business set up with a VA structure and working remotely. So there wasn't an office, we all worked from home. Um, at the time, it was a real shift for me. It was really weird. But then COVID hit and all of a sudden, the way we were working was sort of the norm. So we've been set up, we have clients across the country. Um, we have clients we communicate with all different formats. That's been our normal for the last couple of years. So COVID in terms of our business operations didn't really have an impact. Fantastic. And uh, talk to me about the, because uh, you, you've gone down the independent uh, financial advisor uh, route. Tell us about why that was and, and where that started for you. <laughs> so I'm starting to realize how many of my business decisions have been driven by annoyance. Um, <laughs> it always annoyed me that... Sorry, I mean, this is not a podcast. <laughs> this is a therapy session. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Just how powerful irritation is as a motivator in my life. Yeah. Um, it always annoyed me that I couldn't call myself independent. It was, I mean, that's a silly thing, right? Like the advice we, I give and the advice most people give is independent in form, if not by the law. Um, but it always irked me. It always bothered me. And then as the more I looked into the section 923A definition of independence and what it could mean and how it can work as a business, it really attracted me. It really attracted me, the simplicity of it. And I know it's a big shift from the traditional way of operating. I'd had the benefit of already deciding I wasn't going to take insurance commissions anymore. And I wrote a few blogs around that on LinkedIn to try to just articulate that in my mind. So I'd already ticked that, I'd already crossed that bridge. So the next shift was really, okay, I need to change to a, my own license because I can't call myself independent under a license where anybody is receiving a commission. Um, and so that's what we did. Uh, I applied for the license, got it within 30 days at the start of this year, um, and we're off and running. Yeah, wow. Well. And uh, tell us that that process, was that, uh, did you engage somebody to do that for you or did you? I, I didn't. I did it myself. Um, yeah, I think that might be some control tendencies perhaps, but I wanted to make sure that I read the pack and I read all the background RGs and covered off on all the compliance work myself before we put it in. Honestly, when you account for the time that I put in, it probably would have been cheaper to engage somebody, um, but it's left me a lot more confident around the process and, and our obligations and responsibilities as a licensee. Yeah. And uh, has that changed any of the processes within the business itself that that you're performing? As apart from the independent thing, but the fact that you're now a, a you know the responsible manager and 
uh, it, it's put some blocks in my diary of time that weren't in there before, just reviewing, you know, uh, bloody uh, DDO that came out, like just that ridiculousness. I've had to review that and go through all that. Um, but in, if anything, in terms of our operations of advice, it's simplified it. It's made it a lot clearer of what was maybe surplus in our systems from before and we could cut out. So that's been quite liberating. Yeah, great. Okay. Now, uh, so tell us about the independent part of that process. Like, uh, what did that mean for you? Did you have did you have commissions that you had to turn off or what was that? Uh, no, in the old business we did. And that's why that was part of the factor in, into to selling that business off. Um, in the current one, no. So we didn't have any commissions at all. Yep. So it was, it was a fairly easy transfer. And, and I guess you were prepared and you knew what was coming when you sliced out the client base that you wanted to take with you. Um, Correct. Yeah, that you could uh, that you could operate in their independent form. Yeah, and yeah, there was a cost to that. That, that was there was some impact for that. Um, Is this a new apprenticeship phase that you had to go through? I mean, obviously, you've been through the starting your own business before. You've learned a few lessons along the way. Uh, what did that do to your revenue? It's a lot easier the second time. Our revenue was up for the year. Um, if if you know pro rata for where we were last year, we're up, um, and I think our forward projections are, are a lot more rosy than they were ever before. Um, which feels uncomfortable to say. I, again, like that's not a huge focus for us, but as a business owner, it's really encouraging because that's also going to drive our our growth. We have some pretty yeah growing growth plans that we have developing as well. Yeah, fantastic. Now, planning solo was the the concept that you went out with, uh, and obviously that transformation and helping people through a fairly difficult uh, process or time in their life. Um, but uh, but as you've been writing more and more blogs and, and more and more LinkedIn posts and information, you're getting quite a bit more inquiry just around the independence as well. So talk to us about, um, you know, the the target market. Has, it, has that changed or is it? It's in the process of changing, I think. Um, and that's been a bit of a, a shift for me. I, I'm a pretty stubborn person. Once I make a decision, I tend to stick to it. Um, but yeah, we've been getting a growing number of inquiries for people looking for that independent advice side. They then look into the way that we work and what we're putting out there and it's aligning with what they're looking for. But then they say to us, oh, I'm horribly sorry, but we're happily married. Uh, do you still help us? And yeah, of course we do. We turned away a few people, but I realized that the the value for me in the work that we do with people going through divorce is having that impact on people. And there's behavioral things around that that we can extend to other parts of life and other transitions people go through. And so that's what we're exploring at the moment. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. So, so you've you've created branding and marketing and ideas and concepts around a, a specific niche, and now you're sort of widening that to be. Would it be two niches? Do you think, or is it? Uh... This is the, the the discussion we're having internally. I, I almost picture it as as a matrix where on the horizontal we have the elements of our approach that make that bring value to people going through divorce. So. You know, we're very empathetic. Trust is incredibly important to us. We see it as a real privilege. Um, you know, we're pretty humble about the way we go about things, simplicity, transparency. We've got those behavioral aspects, and I think they extend across a number of, potentially across a number of verticals. And one of those verticals is helping people through divorce. The next one, you know, an area that we're doing some work in is helping people with bereavement. So they've lost a loved one. What does that complexity look like and how can we alleviate some of those stresses? So that's kind of the picture I have in mind of those verticals being the transitions that people go through. And I think our model of project work, limited engagements fits really well for that. If we can get them through that corridor and out the other side, then our work is likely to be done and then we can revisit along the way. So that's kind of the picture I have in my mind. It is a work in progress. It feels weird de-niching almost, um, but I think we're still niching in a way 
because it's it's the way we approach the work is going to be it's the niche that we'll be focusing in rather than a specific you know technical area or transition yep and is that something that you're able to do um that you'll be doing as, as sort of a small practice solo or are you looking at growing it <laughs> both <laughs> uh I, I think it'll again that barrister's model i think it'll still be me primarily for the for the foreseeable future and we'll just focus our practice around that we'll focus heavily on admin support and technical support uh, so we can deliver that service as well as we can but i can foresee a point in the medium term where that's we will have to grow we will have to bring in other advisors we will have to bring in other systems and support and that's another point of stubbornness where i was very fixed on this barrister's sole operator idea but to deliver what we want to the clients we want to help I think I have to turn away from that. So that's been another point that I'll need to, you know, mull over for the next few months. Yeah, fantastic. It could uh, could be another merger on the cards. You never know. (laughs) 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 Could be going around in in another circle. I I won't close any doors, but I'm not. I don't see that one opening anytime soon. But maybe. yeah, fantastic. And just with your meeting process, you know, you mentioned the um, the, the the project. Um, does that mean that you have no set meeting process? Well, after after you've presented what it might be, it just it, it just completely depends. Pretty much, yeah. So we we are very structured at the start. So we'll have an initial phone call to work out if we're the people to help. Then an exploration meeting that takes sixty to ninety min- minutes, where we go through our process, proposal, proposal discussion. Although. What I've started doing now is is recording a, a loom as we go through the proposal, and I find that's really helping clients get on board with things. So that's been really cool. And then we enter the advice or discovery phase, and that can look like, you know, maybe we'll have a discovery meeting, maybe we'll do it all remotely. However, and then it is a bit more fluid after that. Yep, fantastic. And just, uh, I probably just wanted to ask you this too before we go. Um, you you've spent a bit of money on a couple of business coaches that you've mentioned over the years, and in, in, in Baz and Jim. Um, Tell us about that investment and, and what tips would you give to people that are thinking about doing it? So I have to say, like I've been a strong follower of Jim, but I've never engaged him as a coach, unfortunately. Right. It's it's on the drawing board as well. Um, yeah. Baz, the investment, uh, I was pushed into that, to be completely honest. I was pretty skeptical. You know, I don't need a life coach. I don't need a coach. You know, yada, yada, yada. Um, so Brian pushed me into doing that, and I can't quite remember the investment, but it wasn't insubstantial. Um, but... It, We've, I've made it back 30, 40 times easily just from the, yep. the shift in – it ultimately changed the direction of my life, which is pretty hard for a lifelong cynic to say. Yeah, well, no, no longer a cynic. Uh, <laughs> the, the non-traditionalist, we call you, the non-traditionalist. <laughs> hey, mate, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey and your story with the podcast audience. Really appreciate it. If someone wants to continue that conversation, what's the best way they can reach out to you? Yeah, LinkedIn is really good. Uh, my email address is always there as well. Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N at planningsolo.com.au. Um, and my phone number is all over the internet as well. Uh, we've had a few discussions with advisors lately trying to navigate the divorce of their own clients. So more than happy to talk about that. And we're hoping to have some sort of sort of how-to guide or, or some ideas around that out, you know, hopefully by the end of the year. Yeah, so that's really interesting. You actually work with other advisors who have got uh, clients that you just take them through the project and then hand them back. Yeah, I mean, lately it's just been a phone call. Just you know, here's some of the things to watch out for. You know, keep an eye out on this. Talk to this person. Just trying to help people because it's it's hard for advisors as well when you have clients that divorce, particularly with all the uncertainty thrown up by the face here. Um, notes. Yeah. Um, so we encourage people to refer their advice their clients out. 
will happily help, but also every advisor will know another advisor that their client can work with. Refer one party out to them, it keeps life a lot easier. But we're, we're hoping to have a guide that sort of ticks off a few of those. You know, here's how to maybe look at doing that. Here's why SMSFs are a nightmare in divorce, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, fantastic. And if you're following uh, your LinkedIn uh, profile, then you'll probably see those pop up from time to time. Yep. Jordan, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, wish you all the success with how the business pans out in the future. Thanks so much, Fraser. Really enjoyed that chat. Thank you. Thank you.